Your Partner in Success Radio is a free business podcast with host Denise Griffiths. It's all about great stories, conversation, and context to help you move your business and life forward with actionable tips and advice from her guest experts. To listen and subscribe, just find us on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your podcasts. Good morning and welcome to your Partner in Success Radio. I'm your host, Denise Griffiths, and this podcast, I am delighted to say, is ranked in the top 2% of the most popular podcasts globally. And honestly, it's all because of my truly incredible guests. And I am honored and blessed to share time with people who are at the top of their game. And they show up here on this show willing to help you get to where you want to be in life and in business. Now, these are not people who hold back. Their goal is to share with us the essence of peak performance. And today I get to welcome back to the show the visionary thought leader who is currently the CEO of Logos E, Carol Sumner Kreshman. She is also the oldest woman to recently, about a year or so ago, I think, uh, receive a U.S. couple years ago. A couple years ago. Right, a U.S. technology patent, and we had discussed that on our last visit in 2022. So today she joins us to talk about her new book. I've read it. It's on my desk. It's called About Face, the True Story of an American Couple in China Engaged in a Web of Intrigue and Crime. She turns it a cautionary tale to anyone doing business in China. And as a serial international entrepreneur and architect by education and training, Carol built a successful design company that spanned the globe. And in 1980, she operated out of Beijing, thanks to her benefactor, Dr. Armin Hammer, the late chairman of Oxy Petroleum. Carol, welcome back to your partner in Success Radio. Thank you for sending me the book. It scared the bejeebers out of me. It's good to have you back. <laughs> well, it wasn't meant to scare. It was meant to be a warning to the world. And I am amazed that as we are getting ready to sell the book through uh, various ways, the Chinese put up a balloon or two just to remind me that this is what we did when we were in China. And I believe totally that the balloons were a message that people should read the book and understand what happens when you do business in the People's Republic of China. It was quite an experience because we went to China uh, to help maybe develop roller skating rinks for the kids. And it was something that Dr. Hammer was very interested in doing because he was trying to develop an open pit coal mine for multi-millions of dollars in the northern province of Shanxi, and they were stuck with between two attorneys that were fighting with one another, one representing China, one representing Occidental Petroleum. All of a sudden, because my dad was one of the first investors of Oxy in the 50s, we got an invitation, a quiet invitation that was not to be told by anybody to go to China to see if we could help stop this logger jam that Dr. Hammer and the Chinese were fighting over building the online uh, um, uh, open pit coal mine. There we were, two people from 
West Los Angeles, Beverly Hills. I was uh, had been in the family entertainment business, bowling, roller skating, ice skating. That was our focus, and so we were dealing with children. And Dr. Hammer thought, well, this would be a great shill uh, if people are too old or too young to know what a shill is, but somebody that would uh, kind of be his face, China, on good things, that he was there to do good, not to make a lot of money, which was not the case, obviously. No, no, not given what we know now. Yeah, so there we were on on a flight to Beijing with a group of people from Los Angeles who uh, brought a couple of animals from our zoo and a group of artists and me and my husband, um, who unfortunately has passed away but was there with me for the 11 or 12 years that we were in China. And there we were. Um, Nobody knew why we were on the trip. We were told not to talk to anybody on the trip as to why we were there. We met with the Oxy people. We met with the high levels. And um, I spent 10 years of my life with my husband in and out of China building a hotel office apartment complex, the first ever in the country, and uh, located in the middle of, of Beijing. And it was quite an experience to get to that point of having to have a project that was financed by the English, because Standard Charter Asia owned Union Bank. Union Bank is American. Standard Charter Asia was uh, British. And uh, so we had a a very interesting combination of um, people who we gathered in our office that Dr. Hammer gave to us when he moved into a bigger office. And uh, now we have a a hotel office apartment complex that's in Beijing, um, which we sold back to the Chinese after a decade of being in China, that's still operational by them. And here we are with balloons over Beijing and over America. I don't know how where these balloons came from. I don't know if it's a message to me that this is important to them or just a fluke. So that's where we are. What else do you want to know? China is, I've been watching a lot of, what you're talking about. I read a lot. I delve into history a lot. I do not pay any attention, I'll say it right now, to American mainstream media. I don't trust them. I think they're a big part of our problems, and I get my news from basically across the world, but I'm aware of what you're talking about. China bothers me, always has. You know, just the fact that they spy on us all the time, You know, they steal from us all the time, they're they're an interesting country with an interesting mindset, and frankly, I think they're dangerous as hell. Apparently, you do as well. Absolutely. I think that there is a very good chance that they will uh, invade Taiwan and then the uh, um, Philippines 
that they want to be the controlling leaders of the world. There's no question about that. No, they've made that plain for a very long time. I mean, that's if you paid any attention, that was pretty apparent. Right, correct. And uh, the people that the rest of the world don't really understand the volume of humans that live in their world, the volume of uh, control that they have brought into the their world and would like to bring in to all the world, which would include us and everyone else. That's where they are. And I believe that that's their goal. There, there has been and will be their long-term goal. And now they're sort of hunting up to honey up to the Russians because they're so stupid they don't know what to do. And uh, the Chinese are very, very smart. And if you would look at the hierarchy of people that live in this earth, they're like at the top, and they've been secretly at the top for at least the last 20 years. We started in the early 80s when they didn't have running water. And uh, now here we are in uh, 2023, which isn't that many years away from when we started, and they have the ability, number one, to develop a, a virus. I was in the Wuhan lab at one time visiting, um, and that virus covered the globe and put everybody on a stop. If you think about what's happened in the last couple of years with COVID, it's really odd, but it's true. And I know that it came, it was uh, made in the lab and sitting there for when there was going to be riots. If we all remember that there were riots in Hong Kong, when Hong Kong went back to the Chinese from the English. And there was a lot of problems. In fact, there was a huge um, uproar. And uh, they were, you know, if you remember the TV, the people that are listening to you, there there was water cannons that they were shooting at people. There was uh, the Chinese, Hong Kong Chinese took over the new airport and uh, tried to control that. And the Chinese, you know, brought in their, uh, not their guns, because the guns on Tiananmen Square when they killed the children, that was a terrible thing for them in their future and how they and how people would look at them. So they didn't want that again in Hong Kong. And if people can remember that once that virus got exposed to human beings, the people on the street that were rioting in Hong Kong to be free and independent, as the Chinese had promised when the English left, they all disappeared. It was in, I would say, 48 hours, everybody was off the street. And then we Where did they pandemic. go? Home. Where did the people... Uh... They went home because they were afraid of this virus that the Chinese... Gotcha. So instead of rioting or asking for a different kind of a lifestyle in Hong Kong, they all went back to work and and then people got sick all over the world with this virus. 
that came out of Wuhan. Now, when we're talking about, you know, Hong Kong being turned from, you know, turned back, that was a 99-year lease, if I remember correctly, or, you know, right. some kind of agreement. And then when it ended, I watched it. Kind of all hell broke loose after that, which was predictable, given the cast of characters. Well, the Chinese wanted to take over Hong Kong, and they did. And then they wanted to take. Then with the with the virus, they actually um, took over the world for a while. Maybe still now. Well, and you know we're that's why we wrote the book. That's why I was compelled to write this book about face, because face is what they always say they need in order to survive. They need to keep their face in the right place. And so about face means that the Chinese are looking at licking their chops and figuring out where can we move next. Like I said, the book scared the bejeebers out of me. It really did. I'm not kidding. I started to send you a note and say, okay, I am on page whatever it was, um, 147, I think. And I started to send you an email saying my tummy hurts. I wasn't joking. I was reading your book. I was marking it up. I have, you know, sticky notes all over it. And I was clutching. I I caught myself clutching my stomach. And saying out loud, oh, geez, oh, geez. Well, I said other words, too, but mostly, oh, geez. And a lot of this, I have to be honest with you, because I have, I love history. I've, you know, history has been my subject since I was a kid. I'm fascinated by how the world has evolved. I have to tell you, Carol, a whole lot of this wasn't a true surprise to me. At no point did I go, oh, she's got to be kidding. There's no way. I was going, uh-huh, I can see, yep, I get that. I don't. I don't for a moment believe I'm the only person that doesn't will go. Who didn't see this coming? So keep talking. Keep going. Well, my my reason to speak with you today is that uh, you have this vision. I know that others may not have, and I would like the uh, your listeners and your followers to buy the book. It's not an expensive purchase, and it will open your eyes to um, what's happening in another part of the world that we have been sort of ostriches, putting our heads in the sand, not thinking about the, that the fact that there are millions and millions of Chinese that are controlled by a very few, and they want to control the rest of the world. And that's why we wrote the book. We have been, I have been working on this for a number of years um, in terms of what would be the most important thing that they would want to know about what the future will be. And, uh, and lo and behold, we have balloons over the United States and Canada that they sent us. Now, I don't know why I'm not in there laboratories anymore but I have been and I've seen them operate and uh, after Tiananmen Square that we had a very interesting experience with um, the Chinese they didn't know what to do they had the the, uh, Ted Turner's company happened to be in Beijing because the president of Russia was going to be in Beijing so they were there to uh, serendipity and were able to photograph the 
the uh, carnage that the Chinese did when they rolled over the children in Tiananmen Square. That was something that scared the Chinese a lot because they were trying to be, they've always wanted to have one face to the world. Now they opened up and had the real face to the world, that they didn't give a shit about the children that were in the Tiananmen Square, and they were there because Hu Huaban, who had been the prime minister, had passed away, and he was loved by everybody of that era and that age. So the children came from all over that were in college or going to school, and they took a train and whatever, and they covered it. That, you know, the Tiananmen Square and with Ted Turner's group there, supposedly just to interview the Russian uh, president, um, they were able to take those shots and send them around the world, which was which got everybody in China really nervous. So they contacted. I remember. My, I remember that? those pictures. They were heartbreaking and. I remember seeing those, and I, you know, I'll come across them still. They're still out there on the internet. If you go hunt for them, you don't even need to hunt for them; they'll pop up. And there was one picture where one boy, I think it was, was just looking at the mouth of a cannon on this tank. I, I'll never forget it. He just was not going to back down. Oh right, right. And the interesting part about it that people don't know, unless they really are scholars, is that. What the Chinese did is they brought the army in from the Netherlands who didn't speak the same language because in Beijing they spoke a different kind of Chinese. And so the Beijing people were standing on the sideline, as you saw the videos, and trying to tell the the, the, um, armies that were coming in not to hurt the children but they had a different dialect. They were sell- they, their Chinese was different because they came from the countryside. So the people in Beijing who were more sophisticated, had more sophistication in their language. They couldn't communicate with those soldiers. They couldn't say to them. That man that stood in front of the tank was saying silently, no, this is not something you should be doing. After the whole thing was over, we got a call from the head of public security and asked us to come to his office because they didn't know what to do. They didn't know how to replay that video that is in everybody's head watching the uh, the, the, the army and, and whatever tramp over all those kids. They called us in, my late husband and I at the mission and said, we really need your help. We don't know what to do. We don't know how to re-change people's minds who have seen this in person because their video cameras were there. And so they took us on a trip around China and to meet with folks who, whatever they were doing, they wanted us to see there were children and with adults at a, at a kindergarten school. There were people that were uh, that that would have uh, were saving animals in their house, and they, they wanted 
us to go back to the white world and say, oh, this was a big mistake and the Chinese are very lovely and they love everybody that lives there and blah, blah, blah. And we did that with for them. And, and the interesting part is the man who was running that particular agency had been um, and, and Arthur Miller's Death of a Salesman. He played the lead. He was an actor that they put in to be able to turn our heads, the white people's heads, back to the fact that the Chinese were, this was just a mistake. But they've had these mistakes uh, for years. And we're we going to talk about the virus that they made at, the, at Wuhan. Um, I didn't really bring that up in the book because the book is about a bigger picture of what China is and how, and will be. And we need to know about it and we need to understand them better, and we need to understand how we can keep our lifestyle from being um, aborted by the, the Chinese and what they plan on doing. Yeah, I understand. So, I have a couple of questions, Carol. Why did they come to you and your husband, Sheldon, to kind of whitewash, to use it, you know? I don't, I don't know if that's appropriate, to kind of whitewash no. the whole story. And then... Why did you do it? Well, we were in the middle of an investment that was the biggest investment that we had ever made into gotcha. a development. And um, we had become involved in, a, in an emotional way with the people that we worked with in China. I mean, I still hear from them uh, there was a company called ZTE that was run by a woman, and uh, they were manufacturing Android phone devices. And then the, the Americans said, no, they couldn't. They, they, they were saying that they, they put a chip in the phone and that people who bought these phones were going to be listened to all the time. And so they stopped the import of, that, of those, that hardware and um, and I actually had the, Madam Chen at my house when we were discussing how we could make the change again so that the Chinese uh, Android device manufacturers could sell their product in the United States. I mean, they still sell it all over the rest of the world, but they never got a license to sell it back here. And I remember have, having entertained the woman who was the head of the company at my home in California, and we played golf together, and uh, she still communicates with me. Um, but there is still this barrier between the Chinese and the United States that is foolish from our point of view. We should be doing what they're doing, is finding out what they want to do and what they're going to do next. We seem to have lost that interest, and that's why I wrote the book. I want people to know that it is about face. Face is lear learning how to deal with people that may not like you, but that they still respect you. And Does China respect us? I mean, I think they respect our money. There's no question about that. I think they... I don't know whether they, they, that they, in this generation, um, 
have the same input yet with their I think they control their people so tightly. I mean, I was shocked and overwhelmed when I saw the pictures during the COVID era where they were actually locking people in their in their rooms in their ho- in their houses. I saw that years ago when they were building apartment buildings for the locals and you know so they didn't have an elevator they had an elevator but it didn't stop at every floor because they figured people could walk up a flight and walk down a flight so every other floor is where you could and then there were people on the elevators that worked for the spy people and they found out what was going on in the buildings Um, this is information that I've tried to put into the book um, but I didn't want it to go over 500 pages because <laughs> there's so much to say about what the Chinese do and where their head is and where they think they're going. I, you know, I've never been to China, and I never will go there. It's not too many people. I don't even like the the idea of going to New York. I see pictures of people milling around New York, and I get a little nauseated. It's just too people for me. But... I have to ask this. I mean, you've observed, you know, people in in that country for a long time, and you still know people. They can't be a fundamentally happy populace, can they? I mean, it seems to me they're all walking around, just reading your book and reading other things, that they're all walking around tight and stiff and going, oh, geez, oh, geez, I'm being watched. Be careful. That's no way to live. Well, that's what face is all about being able to um take some control over your life and from what i'm seeing and what people have been writing me the few that have we have we're just about to send the book out as i said barnes and noble uh amazon and some other uh distributors um we see that there's going to be we feel that they're going to be a big interest um in mind and understanding a little bit more about the people and who they are through what we've written and uh we've been i've been collecting along with my late husband information about the chinese when we sold back the hotel in 92 right at the same time that the towers came down in new york and uh, I wonder who was behind that. Yeah, uh, I mean that there, there's a lot. If you if you take a step back like we did in order to get the book written in the way that we wanted it, I see that there is there are points along the last 25 years that they came out of hiding and became uh, uh, activists in protecting their way of life. Is there anything that we as American can Americans can do, or white people across the globe? What can we do to protect ourselves from from that mindset? It's a mindset that, frankly, I think is. I'm just going to say it on the radio: batshit crazy. These are not sane people who think that they can just control an entire populace, an entire world. That's not sane. There's something very, very wrong with that kind of thinking. But they've been doing it for it goes, it goes way, 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 way back into the dynasties. I mean, 
This is nothing new with the Chinese. Where in the world has that come from? Control. They want to control. Don't, I, I don't understand that. I really well, uh, maybe it's because not I'm a free human, country, but I don't understand it. And we can't be ostriches. We have to, to face them face to face, which is again why we call the book about face. We have to face and understand what's in their head. I think that it's interesting because some of the videos that we saw when they were locking their people down because of COVID. They created it, and then they they let it go, and then they couldn't control it. So they the only way they could control COVID was to lock people into their rooms, into their, and it really reminded me a great deal of 25 years ago when people were afraid to go out or go or say anything against their government. They were very very, and I don't think that it has changed much. They've just become more powerful and able to do things in a global way, like with the balloons that they send up. Um, that doesn't seem to have any kind of consequence. No, we just sort it of watch it. We just, yeah, well, we, kind of, we kind of stand there watching this happen. And, and our no, government doesn't help. I mean, those things have been flying around for a while, and. People go, oh look, a balloon! It's really that stupid. It's it, it's it's fearful. So I'm hoping everybody buys our book. It's only just a shade under thirty dollars. Um, you get four hundred and fifty pages that you, you know, you're gonna open your mind to what's going on in another part of the world that normally doesn't open their doors. But everything they do does impact us. I mean, if you're just looking at the garbage that lives in our houses, <laughs> all of it, it's gotten so cheap and so easy. This is, I'm going off on a little bit of a, a tact here, but it, we're surrounded by Chinese-made goods. It's everywhere. It's in our garages. It's in our drawers. I look at the stuff that, because, you know, oh, I can't find my screwdriver. I'll just go buy another one. It's a buck at Dollar Tree. All that stuff used to be cash, our cash, but guess where it is now? So think about that before you go buying a bunch of junk from Walmart. And I love Walmart. You know, I'm not going to – I mean, I get my groceries delivered every week. But we don't need to buy the crap we buy that came from China. We just don't. But we do. But we do. But we do. Cheap, but we do because it's less money and it's it's available and um, – we're talking to the people at Walmart to distribute our book. I feel that what we wrote, and you've read it, and I hope your listeners will figure out a way. You can buy it online with Amazon. You can go to Barnes & Noble. There will be others uh, that we will, through you and other uh, wonderful podcasting, to tell people where to go to buy the book. The books are inexpensive because we didn't want it to be priced out of people's reach. We, our goal is to have everybody have um, about face in their house so they can understand what is happening with the largest uh, ch- uh, country in the world. 
China. It's yeah, it's scary. And to go back just a little bit, Carol, you didn't know. I mean, you had no idea that your joint venture was going to ensnare you, your husband, and and those that you worked with in a dangerous web that included the most ruthless of China security agencies. I can talk, I can. And then the FBI and the CIA and a whole cast of characters who seemed straight out of a Hollywood spy thriller. It wasn't. It was real. You were in it. That's right. The funniest, I mean, the oddest thing that happened to me, when the towers came down in New York... I had the year before gotten a license to build an ice skating rink on the plaza at the World Trade Center. And we were in the second year of developing. It was very successful, but we had, you know, we when summer came, we took down the rink and, and um, that's a whole other story. But then when we were getting, they were just getting ready to uh, to build the new one or just to the ice rink back when the towers came down, when whoever they were flew into the towers, and I wouldn't put it past the Chinese to have made that part of their uh, attack on the United States. And I was in L.A., and I was just mortified and shocked and scared, and I didn't know what to do. So crazy me got on an airplane, which nobody else did, and flew to New York. And uh, so I went the next day from my ho- my office in New York, and I went down to the World Trade Center. And uh, first of all, people didn't understand that I know how did I get there the next day. The flights weren't flying, but I found a and as I took the cab down to very as far down south as I could in New York to get closer to see what is physically happening with the World Trade Center, um, there were several guys standing around that were wearing dark suits, and uh, obviously they were CIA or some other part of the FBI. And so they stopped me and uh, said, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I had an ice skating rink there and there's 80 people that worked for me and I think they probably are all dead and I'm just coming down here to see if I can do anything or help anything and they said well you can't be here I said I understand but I'm just going to stand on the corner and I said do you work what, what agency do you work with and they said well we work with all the agencies I said well do you know uh, this gentleman uh, uh, Greg uh, Smith, he uh, he was training people in China when I was living there, and he said, "Really, you knew him?" I said, "Yeah, he was a really dear friend of mine." And he says, "Well, he's our guy. He's the one that is training us." I said, "Really?" And after that, they just took me and escorted me down as far as I could to see what was going on, and that's the weirdness of how many places China does erupt. Carol, what were they, when you say he was training them, what was their training about? What were they being trained for? Well, the American government was training people in China that are Americans that worked for the CIA and and other government agencies to make sure that 
they could understand what was actually going on in China. If this, the, these people that I met before we built the hotel, you would have thought that they came out of some uh, country bumpkin. I mean, we were not in any way um, sophisticated to deal with the Chinese in the 80s when they started to come out. Understood. And I'm so, not sure well, we are now. I'm not sure we are now either. I remember well, meeting this guy. There was a at the we we lived in the Beijing hotel, which was unusual for foreigners. And we had our off. And Dr. Hammer gave us his office, which he had developed at the Beijing hotel because there was a new office building that opened, and so that was our headquarters. And uh, so there was a. Uh, one of the uh, hotel rooms had turned into like a retail store, and I would go and buy these pins that are the American and Chinese friendship pins and other things that I would give to people that we brought over that wanted to do business in China because it was more than just the hotel. We had people that did, made T-shirts and shirt, everything. We also um, worked with the, the silk industry in China. Yeah, I mean, we did a lot, and anybody who gets the book and gets involved and interested in in the Chinese from the past into the future um, will see that we co- my our company, uh, World China Trade, uh, covered the waterfront because there were so few Americans that were there when we were there. So the hotel was built, but we also uh, uh, helped them design. Uh, fabric that's more modern and had a big fashion show with all of the people from uh, the, around the, the the world that were part of uh, um, the, the uh, I'm trying to remember the uh, the books the the magazines Architectural Digest and uh, Vogue and all of those magazines they would. Uh, we allowed them to have two designers from each country, and they made they made garments out of newly minted and woven silk because the Japanese had sold the Chinese junk, and we got them the better uh, milling uh, facilities so that they were making uh, silk that was wider, not just the narrow silk that was part of the history of China. So we did a lot of other things other than building a hotel. We really got in in the years that we were there, because we were there for 12 years, um, helping them modernize a lot of their um, industry. Well, it sounds like you really, you loved the people that you were working with, and you loved the country, but at the same time you were seeing what was kind of hiding behind the the dirt on the floor, so to speak. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And when we went to meet the people that were big shots in the American, the few Americans, I mean, they would always say, look up, you know, point up and say there's the listening devices everywhere. I remember once my late husband, who was a computer guy, he uh, he took a, a, key, a little the nightstand, at the, one of the hotels that we were traveling around China, 
we were the first people to go to a, co- a company that was set up outside of Shanghai that was building, um, taking parts from outside China and building computers. And we were invited to go through their factory, and then all of a sudden, as we were sitting there having tea in this big conference room, a bunch of people walked in with cameras on their shoulder, and our host said, oh, isn't this interesting? They've they've sent over people from China TV to, to, to interview you guys because we wanted people to know that we are opening the doors to the rest of the world. So... These are things that happened around us because there weren't a lot of us in China at that time. We were really, really kind of an enigma for a lot of. The so time they were days. going to they were going to use you as best as they could for propaganda. Yes. Okay, Absolutely. gotcha, gotcha. Yes. So uh, that's where we are with them. We are propagandized and. Uh, Lots of people here in the United States have never been to China. They wouldn't even know exactly what people are thinking there. And that's why we wrote the book, because I wanted people to understand, as smart as we are as as, uh, humans here in America, how uh, silly we are when it comes to the Chinese. We've always looked down at them. We've always thought that they were... Oh, I never did. I've always well, watched the way they educate themselves, and it's impressive. It's rigorous. It's daunting, but they don't ever stop educating themselves. It's amazing. And then when they don't like you, they send you out to the countryside. Now, what does re-ed- that mean? For re-education. I've heard you say that. Oh. Tell me about that. Well, if you are taken out of your office or your company and because you've done something that they're not happy with and you're sent out to the farm, you could spend the rest of your family life there without having any ability to continue the world that you were living in before. I mean, there was real fear when we first got to China that the young woman who um, we selected to work with um, the man that we selected as local president of our company, uh, when we when and she lives near me in California, which is weird that they moved to California, and so I hear and I interact with her. She we sent her to USC to get her master's degree, and then I mean there's a whole story that goes with her. But when you think about the fact that um, when I we brought her home one night early in the game and we went to her little apartment her family had been sent out to the hinterlands they were educated people but they were going through re-education remember when they used to call it re-education so we walked in to her little apartment and um, I will tell you that there must have been ten locks on her door that's how frightened she was. How can you live like that? How can people goes, actually survive with that kind of built-in fear that control. never goes away? But I, I'm going to guess, and I don't know this, I'm going to ask you, but do they live to be a very great age? How can they with that kind of stress? 
Well, I haven't done a research on that, but Shalu and her husband live about 30 miles from me, and they've lived like 30 miles from me, so I just sort of accepted it, and it's sort of interesting. And when my husband passed away suddenly, uh, they brought me six dinners that they had made and brought it over to me. Um, That sounds great. Right, that sounds like really nice people, which they were, but it also, for me, got me ner- uh, nervous about the fact that they would come and sort of want to know everything that's going on with me, and they still do. That's why I think some of those balloons might have been personally for us who are about to launch this book. Interesting. So. I'm really finding this fascinating. So in the book, in Chapter 13, I think it is, Expulsion from China, what happened there? We stood up to them. We had a problem that they had lied to us. And I won't go in. You read the book. You'll you'll get the background of it. And uh, so... Sheldon and I literally were thrown. We had already put our money in. We already hired our local architect. We already hired our interior designer out of Hong Kong. We were ready to move forward, and um, we got into an argument that turned into us being thrown out of the country and back to America where... We were working virtually, not in the way you work virtually now, because this was in the early 80s, so there wasn't any kind of Internet. But we had people that we had hired and people who were running the company for us when we were there. And um, so the American government came to help me. And they made a. Uh, they decided that I would lead a woman-only uh, group to China, and that were in they were either architects or designers or had done some construction. And uh, they were about 25 of these women, and they sent me the assistant to Secretary HUD and of somebody from the CIA. And uh, it's a funny story because I was meeting everybody at in San Francisco when we were going to fly Pan and then we were going to fly to Beijing. And um, so I left from LAX up to San Francisco to meet with my girl, my, my group of women and uh, fly over. The first stop was Japan. So we it was the... The funny part of it was, I still remember these little bits and pieces, it was the day after the Super Bowl was in San Francisco. And um, a lot of very wealthy people had flown their private planes into San Francisco to go to the uh, football game. And I was sitting on the tarmac in a PSA flight, at LAX to try to get to San Francisco so I could meet with my group and take them to China because they were all meeting in San Francisco. 
And so I was on this plane, uh, I thought with plenty of time, but we were stuck in the line as people were leaving because there were so many people with private planes in San Francisco, they had to wait till some of them got off back to where they were going. So I'm sitting there and looking at my watch and thinking, oh, my God, I'm going to miss this flight. If I miss the flight, there'll be all these women who don't know what the hell they're doing. Uh, I'm their leader. What am I going to do? How am I going to catch up with them? How am I going to tell anybody that, that I'm going to be late? So I flagged down one of the stewardesses and told her my little problem. I said, I know that there's probably nothing you can do because people that did planes were just waiting in line so that they would be able to fly to San Francisco. I said, but I'm really in trouble because this meeting 30 women and uh, that have never been abroad in Asia, and I'm going to miss them. I don't know how I'll ever even catch up with them. So she said, I don't know what to do, the stewardess, and she said, let me see what I can, you know, let me let me find out. So I guess the people, the pilots, must have called air traffic control because in five, about three minutes after I spoke to her, we were out. We we moved out of the line of planes and got up to the front of the line, and we got to San Francisco in time for me to gather my troops and get them on another plane to go to Japan. But when we got to Japan, and everybody had bought. Tons and tons of clothes. I mean, I guess you would have done that as a woman. You know, this was an honor to go to China. You know, so you have all your clothes and stuff. And I get, you know, we plane lands and I'm trying to gather my stuff so I can meet up with the women who are going to be with me. And uh, lo and behold, my luggage did not come. So for the first two weeks of the travel, I had one set of clothing, and I got them in outside of Tokyo the day before we left. We took them on a little trip to a small village um, in outside of Tokyo so they could kind of get acclimated to what they're going to be seeing. These are all were American women who uh, were builders and architects and designers. And so I bought three things, an underwear and a little bit of makeup, and that's what I had for the first two weeks of travel with them. And, of course, we were seated everywhere. And uh, Betty Ballard, who wrote the the book, her husband was the ambassador to China at the time. And lo and behold, the Chinese found my luggage the day before the big event at the embassy. Of course. Isn't that amazing that they found my luggage? Shocking. Shocking, right. All the two weeks. Uh, and, you know, there's photos of us. The other thing we did that I don't think that anybody had ever thought about doing is that all the materials that we had we had to send to China that they didn't have, we put them into shipping containers and sent it off before, um, you know, we were breaking ground. And then I showed them how to take the shipping containers and turn them into the office that's right there on the on the property and you can see it in the book there's some photographs and there's all photographs of the uh, building the facility and the, and there's a plen- plenty of information we've kept the 
video, the vi- the, not the video, but the um, photos to a few so that people could look into it further. That was my idea when I wrote the book, is to give them a taste of different photographs from the, bu- the building of the the hotel so that they can do their own. There's plenty of ways of finding out how the Asia Hotel was built. And right. it was the first mixed-use project in the country. But I always laugh about the two things. First of all, I was able to move the plane in front. And then second of all, they found my luggage the last day. <laughs> miracles. You know, the whole story is just full of miracles, right? <laughs> I guess so. What are you going to do? But you know what I want... I'm I'm not laughing. I kind of am because, you know, you can almost see that coming. But I'm looking I mean, you guys had a lot of money in this in this joint venture contract. And then all of a sudden your husband is faced with that your you know, half of your investment I think was almost two million dollars and it was supposed to be released from escrow and then all of a sudden everything just kinda of went to crap, didn't it? Yes, it did. Yeah. But we figured it out. We figured it out. So did they go into this? I mean, hindsight, of course, is wonderful. But did they, did Chinese, the Chinese come into this fully intending to cheat you? Or did it just, did an opportunity present itself and they went, oh, let's do this? That's the conundrum that will, you read the book. You yep. Okay. Read the book, everybody. <laughs> you know what I think. You can tell by my tone of voice. Okay. So, and I'm looking at some of these pictures. That is a, that's a beautiful building. I mean, it really is. I mean, it's, I mean, it's been around for a long time. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of architecture to me, especially the cement architecture is just, you know, they put up a bunch of stuff and they say, okay, it's, it'll work, but it's not beautiful. To me, buildings need to be beautiful. They really do. We're looking at them. We're living in them. We're building. We're, you know, we're around them all the time. Why shouldn't they be functional and beautiful? And this one is a beautiful building. Thank you. So, okay, so the station wagon. Tell me about the station wagon. That is... Um, Chapter 15. I love this story. Well, we when we started in China, most of the cars were like little taxis. Right. And um and it was hard to get. It was a hard they didn't they didn't have a manufacturing facility to make uh, cars at that time. They were importing them from Japan. And uh, we thought, well, I had this old station wagon because um, I had a bunch of kids. Um, I, that's another story of my life. But um, my second husband's ex-wife died, and I ended up taking raising her, his kids along with mine. And so we had a station wagon. And I thought, well, this would be great if we could figure out a way to get the station wagon to Beijing. And 
then we would be able to take our customers, our clients, and have, you know, room for five or six or seven or eight people. The little Japanese cars, you know, would hold, the taxis and everything would just have enough room for like two people or three people. And so we uh, repainted it and uh, we shipped it off to uh, to China. And it sat at the uh, at the dock because uh, all of a sudden they wanted a tremendous amount of money uh, to bring the car into you know to make so we had yeah the to, duty it was going to be the, something like twenty thousand dollars exactly so the no duty, station wagon is worth twenty thousand dollars even new it was an old car that we had painted over and put World China Trade on it and. It was just another negotiation that we had to do, and I thought it would be fun to have it in the book because that's what they do. You know, they got us over there and said everything would be great, and then they wanted $20,000 in order to get it out of Hawk. We ended up negotiating it. Everything with them was a a negotiation. That's why we call it about face. Yep. Carol, we are. Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, keep going. So, I mean, there's obviously, within the book, there's a lot of funny stories. And uh, we hope that it, it will um, educate the people around the world because I'd like to see these, this book be read everywhere, especially now. It's very important oh, yeah. that people understand from uh, the grassroots and the way we've set it up in this book that there's funny stories, there's scary stories, it's in real stories, and that will give the Americans and the Europeans who really haven't spent a whole lot of time in China another perspective about the and country that, and the people. Right, and we definitely need that. Carol, we are just about out of time. Remember, every time I talk with you, it just goes so fast. Because everything you share is just so fascinating. But before I let you go, is there anything you want the audience to know before we shut this down? Everything that is in that in the book is my truth. And that's what I want the people to read who read the book, whether you're here in the United States or you're in Europe or you're in other parts of Asia, if we're able to get the book into China. Um that's a view of people, me, my husband, the people that we gathered together in a time when China was emerging. Interesting. And I hope that it will give that background when you read the book as to where we are, right? We, as a world, have to deal with these people who have lived in, uh, under terrible circumstances who now have um, the view of taking over the world. One thing I don't think I've mentioned to you, Carol, this, as I mentioned at the top of the show, this podcast is big. It, it really is, and it's all because of people like you. But what I didn't mention, didn't even think to, is that a lot, and this has shocked me for years, a lot of my audience comes from, guess where? China. 
Sure. So they want to be heard they, here anyway. They, they want to know what, what what's going on all the time. Well, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I hope that with their listening, they're able to find the book. It's on Amazon. Um, get somebody to mail it to you, do whatever it takes to get the book. But, Carol, thank you so much. Where, very quickly, where can people find you? Where can they find the book? Well, the book is on, on Amazon, online. It will be available. I'm not sharing. It's mine. <laughs> um, then we're starting to work with Barnes & Noble. And... Uh, I'm going to do some book signing locally where I live in California, but they want to take it all over the country and other parts of the world. And I'm looking to uh, expand our distribution. So we, the book is 450 pages. It goes, but it's fast read, and uh, it's all the truth of what my late husband and I did and what we saw and where we think we should be as as a country in the United States, uh, stop being so naive. I want to tell these the people that buy the book, and it, it's very interesting. I, I I was at a luncheon at my uh, country club where I live uh, a week ago Friday, and I had just gotten the books, and we were just having lunch at a fashion show. And there were some women at the table that were from Canada, and they were very interested, and they started reading the book. And before I knew it, I sold 30 books. It's timely. It's, you know, there's a lot of things going on in our world that if you're paying even a tiny bit of attention, ought to scare the crap out of you. I hate to keep using that word, but pay attention. There's a lot of things going on that really are frightening and you need to be aware at least start doing a little bit of homework and going from there so carol thank you so much it's been again wonderful speaking with you and i thank you for all of the the terrific stories and the advice that you've shared with our audience and before we say goodbye i would like to remind our audience to be sure to look for us in itunes audible stitcher Honestly, anywhere you can consume your business podcasts. The truth is you can't throw a stick on the Internet without hitting your partner in Success Radio. So take us along on your success journey. Again, Carol, thank you so much. Well, thank you for your time, and thank you to, for your listeners. And uh, um, I'm available through you, and uh, we'd love to continue uh, this journey. This is only, yeah, hopefully, the beginning Get the books out, get people to understand what's going on, and uh, I maybe we'll put together some kind of a talk, regular talk radio with you and uh, see what people have to say after they've read the book. Get your voice heard. If you would like to launch your own far-reaching podcast, contact Denise Griffiths at yourofficeontheweb.com and go to the podcast tab. 